so we've been going through a series called Desire, uh, which, uh, yes, is Pat's uh, acronym, uh, and it's all about desiring God, because if we haven't understood that uh, Christianity is actually about a loving relationship with a living God, then we've entirely missed the point. And so uh, Pat has offered a free coffee for anyone who's able to uh, unfold all of the letters of that acronym, and surprisingly, no one's done it. Um, I'm not sure, I'm unconvinced as to whether that's the sign of a good acronym, uh, but anyway, <laughs> bad icons. We're up to the letter I, and so today uh, we're preaching I is for hope, as in, as in I hope I'm preaching the right message today. Uh, no, it's inspiration, because that fit with the word, inspiration, hope for a better day. But we are, we're going through the, the concept of hope, and, and as I speak this morning, there are two types of people here listening to me. There are those who would consider yourselves to be optimists. You're a glass half full kind of people. You, you generally think life is going to serve up something good and life is going to go well for you. And then, amen to that. And then there is another group of people that you would call yourself a realist, and the optimist might call you a pessimist, but look, it's all a spectrum anyway. <laughs> Uh, they tend to marry each other, I can see uh, <laughs> some not happening. But uh, you, you're sort of the glass is half empty and you would rather not entertain something other than uh, the facts of the situation, something that's not really realistic, hence the endonym of a, of a realist. Uh, but I must admit I'm firmly in the, in the first category, I'm, I'm an optimist, I generally believe that life's going to, to go well and this means that I'm actually quite good in a team context. Uh, you know, I've played a lot of team sports and, and you know, kind of the half-time half team talk kind of thing, rallying the, the troops, things, things can still go up from here. And uh, at one point in time, I've, I've been involved in something called Gents Camp for a number of years, and it's a high school camp for teenage boys, and uh, there's one running right now, actually. And uh, on that week, you spend the week in a tribe competing for this illustrious tribal trophy. And uh, we had noticed a few years ago that the founding director of this camp had managed to go for more than 10 years and he had never won the wooden spoon. So the accusations of match fixing were flying around, but like good Australian men, we thought we got to fix this. And the tall puppy syndrome was alive and well and we uh, wanted to cut him down to the rest of our level and to, to get him to lose, to come last. Uh, and now he had a few narrow escapes for a couple of camps, uh, but the, the pressure got so intense that he started to get paranoid that uh, there was going to be a plant inside his tribe who was going to take him down from the inside. So he thought, what do I do here? He thought, who is the one leader that I can trust who is never, ever going to betray me from the inside? Not because they're full of integrity or honor or loyalty, but because they're so competitive that they could not fathom losing on purpose. So anyway, I got put in his tribe that year, and we uh, surprisingly, we came into the last day, and we were in first place, and we were feeling very good about ourselves, although if, you, if you've been on a camp, you know that that's not the best place to win from, because the last day always involves losing points and not gaining points. But anyway, he gave me the task of giving the, the pep talk to our tribe before we went into our final game. And I tell you, I was in my element. It was, it was probably the best motivational speech I've ever given. It was, you know, pure Hollywood stuff. It was, it was practically Braveheart. Um, I'm, I'm embellishing, all right? But, but I, I, I remember the gist of what I said. I got the guys together and I said, look, all week this whole camp has been against us. They've been trying to get us to lose, but here we are in first place. We've shown that we're stronger. We're shown that we're faster. We're shown that we're smarter than them. And we're going to be the first tribe to ever play this game in first place and come out in first place, and we're going to win that trophy. 
And man, it was just electric. Everybody was so pumped and so hyped and ready to go. So we went out onto the battlefield and we got smashed badly and came last by a long way. And uh, I appreciate the soft laughs to uh, that result. It stings a little bit still. But you see, optimism is a powerful perspective and a powerful attitude. But from the other side, there are some major problems with optimism. The first one is that it doesn't make a material difference to the outcome. Having an optimistic attitude can't change a diagnosis. It can't make a, a spreadsheet balance. It doesn't matter how positive you are, you cannot guarantee that you're going to get every green light on the way to work. There is no such thing as a law of attraction. And you may have heard that idea floating around a number of decades ago, but for every thousand people that believe that that works, it seems to only work for one, which tells me it's no law of attraction, it's actually the, just the law of averages. But there is, uh, that problem is that optimism doesn't actually guarantee a result. So in, in one sense, it's kind of pointless. The second problem with optimism is that it doesn't seem to represent the facts. Chances are, if a situation looks bad, it is bad. And so if you're going to assume that something good is coming out of it, you know, this seems to be just false. You know, at best, it's kind of naivety, and, and at worst, it's deception. The third thing that is a problem with optimism is that it opens ourselves up to disappointment. Because if you are hoping that something good is going to come, then that gives you the chance of being let down, and that pain is very difficult. So frankly, what is the point? Why take the risk? But we should ask the question, where do these attitudes of optimism and, and pessimism fit within a faith framework? Is there one of these which is more godly or more biblical than another? Or are they both legitimate positions? Are they simply personality traits? You know, Jesus said in Mark 10, 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And I think that our answer starts with that verse, because children are born optimistic. Children are born with the assumption that the world is good, that it is working for their good, and that they're going to get good out of it. And so if we're to receive the kingdom of God like a child, part of what Jesus is meaning here is that we receive it with hope. We receive it believing that this is good and that it's going to result in our good and God's glory. Now, we're like uh, any other parents. Uh, we try really hard to get our kids to bed at night, and then once they are finally asleep, we go into our room, we open up Netflix, and we eat ice cream. <laughs> and the other night, we were watching our movie, and my son appears in the doorway, and he's got this great, he sucks his middle two fingers, so he's got this rock star thing going on. It's really adorable. But he stands there and sort of like looks, looks into us, you know, eating our and he says the most hopeful thing that a two-year-old in pyjamas at 9 p.m. can say. He says, can I have one? <laughs> Not can I have some of your ice cream, but he wanted one of his own. Can I have one? And, and let me tell you, he would not have asked that if he did not believe that things were going to go well for him and that he was going to get some ice cream. Or my daughter, when she was two, I remember she went out to our, our chicken coop to, to collect eggs and she opens the door and uh, I don't know how, somehow, she managed to get, she's only got little hands, she managed to get five eggs just sort of sitting here. And uh, meanwhile, the, the doors open, chickens are all getting out, having a great time, you know, pooping all through the yard. 
And she looks at these eggs and she thinks, I've got to, I've got to show mum and dad this. She looks at the, the backyard that she's got to navigate through to the back door and she goes, yeah, this is going to go well for me. Um, and it did not go well for four of those eggs. <laughs> but children are naturally hopeful and optimistic. Our factory setting, if you will, is optimism. And so what happens to hope? What is it about growing up in this world that seems to lead us away from hope and to remove optimism as a genuine attitude? You know, I think that the, the answer is not too difficult. And that is that pessimism, and, and not just pessimism, not, not full-blown pessimism, but just a negative outlook, a negative attitude, they are the scars of disappointment. Everybody experiences disappointment in life, and at some point you've got to cross the bridge of how do we process that? How do we process that disappointment in a world that is full of it? And I would probably hazard a guess, and this is Sandy's shower thoughts, so feel free to disagree with me on this one, but I would guess that if you're an eldest child, chances are you're more likely to be pessimistic. And if you're a youngest child, you're more likely to be optimistic, because the eldest child has to realize sooner that not all of their hopes are going to be realized. Mum and dad are a bit stricter. They're much more likely to say no to the eldest child. And you see that your, your family actually doesn't sort of revolve around you. And so you've got to process that disappointment earlier. But if you're a youngest child, like me, then you don't have to deal with that processing until you're a bit older. The parents are much more relaxed. They're much more likely to say yes to the youngest. And all of you eldest are going, yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. And for the most part of your upbringing, the, the, the family choices kind of revolve around your needs. Am I in the ballpark here? Well, good. Well, there's no forthcoming study, but you can disagree with me in the cafe afterwards, if you like. But disappointments come in life no matter who you are. When I was eight years old, I wanted Pokemon cards for my birthday. Uh, but my parents decided that it wasn't a good idea. And I mean, that's a little thing, but as an eight-year-old, that really stung, because it wasn't just that I didn't get what I was hopeful for, but that I was told what I was hoping for was wrong. But disappointments get bigger than that. You know, maybe you've applied for a position of school captain and you, and you haven't got it. Or maybe you've applied for a job or you've applied for a promotion and you haven't got that. Or maybe you've been hopeful for a relationship, but it turned out to result in rejection. Or perhaps you were hopeful about life turning out where you, you married this, this wonderful spouse who does the half the chores and doesn't complain, and you've got kids who grow up to love the Lord and they don't throw a tantrum when you say they can't have ice cream, and those hopes are disappointing. But disappointment can run much deeper than that. Maybe you hoped that a loved one would recover from sickness, but they died. Maybe a friend whom you had placed your trust in had betrayed you. Or maybe you trusted a family member or a mentor or a spiritual leader to keep you safe and they let you down badly. Or perhaps the one person who should have been the safest in your life turned out to be the least safe person for you. See, disappointment is a deep and painful lesson. But when it comes to God, the stakes are much higher than that because rather than dealing with another broken person within this broken world, you are dealing with an almighty and all-powerful being. And so there's barely an escape to the logic that if this happened to me, then God, it must be your fault. 
And so we choose pessimism to protect ourselves from disappointment and ultimately to protect ourselves from despair. Let me try and visualize this for you. We've got a a continuum up here, and on one side there's despair, on the other side is hope. And in the middle we have uh, pessimism and optimism there. But we need to understand that this idea of pessimism, I've I've used that word, but we should mean something much broader than that. Because pessimism may or may not be the assumption that things are going to turn out in the worst possible way. Pessimism may or may not be a depressive tendency. But what pessimism certainly is, is a choice not to hope for the fear of disappointment. Because disappointment drives us down towards despair. You see, the thing about pessimism is we we take this negative attitude as a protective mechanism to stop us from entering into despair. And so being in that position essentially puts a floor, a wall, a barrier beneath us and despair stops us from moving down in that way. If you, if, but the, but the, the consequence of that is that you also choose not to hope. So not only are you stopped from moving that way, but there is no way for you to progress towards hope. Because if you don't hope, you can't be disappointed. And then what happens is that every time you experience disappointment in life, it simply reinforces that this is the right attitude. This is the only correct way to expect life to turn out for me. And it ends up forming a barrier all the way around your heart. You end up being stuck here, unable to express or experience hope, and under the assumption that it's going to stop you from descending into despair. But how many of us know that that simply doesn't work? The worse the disappointments come, the more it reinforces that box, and that is simply a neurological fact. But it's not always the worst disappointments to the worst extent, but sometimes it is disappointment at a critical stage of life where, where hopefulness is, is important developmentally. And perhaps it's, it's a parental response which has squashed that disappointment, which leads you to believe that not only does hope not work, but there's something wrong with my hope. There's something wrong with the things that I hope for. And all of those work very powerfully to trap us in a hope-proof box. Romans 15, 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Does your heart abound in hope? Are you filled with joy and peace In believing, or are you trapped inside this hope proof box, wounded by disappointment? So, what happens when we inoculate ourselves against hope? The first thing is that you will struggle with faith. If you don't believe that God's attitudes are towards you are good and that that will result in good for you, then faith, quite frankly, doesn't make sense. And so you may find yourself in a situation where you're struggling and then somebody comes in and wants to encourage you and they say, this is tough, but you just have to trust God. You just have to believe in God. And you say, what a stupid thing to say. Is that going to fix me right now? Just believe in God. Just trust in God. Is that going to make a difference to my life right now? And you see, the problem is that perhaps it's not a faith issue. 
Perhaps there is faith there, but the hope that should accompany the faith cannot penetrate your soul because it's trapped inside this hope-proof box. So maybe you do have faith, or maybe even the faith is too difficult at the moment, but you continue to exist as though you are defeated because you have no hope. You see, so often the answer that the Bible gives us is very simple. Don't be afraid. Trust God. It's going to be okay. And if we sincerely believe that God is for us, that God's plans and his, his attitudes towards us are good, then that should be a great encouragement to just trust God. So if you're trapped in that box, you're going to struggle with faith. The second thing that you're going to struggle with is the focus of this series, which is desire. You're going to struggle to have a desire and an affection for God. And, and if you've been through any level of relationship counseling, you know that one of the, the most important pieces of a healthy relationship is an underlying assumption of goodwill, which is the understanding that my, my spouse or this other person in the relationship, deep down, they actually want what's good for me. They actually want me to, to, to flourish and to benefit. Because the thing is, when that is not there, when you don't have that underlying assumption of goodwill, then absolutely anything can turn into a full-blown argument because you're receiving these actions, you're interpreting them as negative and inflammatory. And so when we apply that to God, if you, if you don't understand, if you don't know, if, you, if you're not sure whether his feelings towards you are good, then it just doesn't make sense to pursue him. You're not going to have any desire for him. You're not going to have any affection for your relationship for him. Now, you might still go to church. In fact, chances are you are going to keep up every possible rhythm that you can to maintain your subscription to heaven because you might not be affectionate for God, but you fear him. You understand that he's in charge and in control of your situation. But in that space, you will not develop desire and affection for God. Now, the third thing that is the outcome of inoculating ourselves against hope is that we are going to struggle to hear God's voice. It's going to feel like God doesn't talk to you. It's going to feel like he's got nothing to answer you with in that space. And to a degree, he doesn't. Do you remember the story of, of Naomi and Ruth? There's a small book in the Old Testament which follows the story of uh, a, a Naomi, who's from Bethlehem, and uh, her Moabite daughters-in-law. And Naomi is a pessimist through and through. The disappointments in life have robbed her of any capacity to hope. See, she left Bethlehem with her husband and with her two sons, and she went into Moab, and then while she was there, all three of them died. And she is simply left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And so when she goes back to Bethlehem, it tells us in Ruth chapter 1 from verse 19, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And the Hebrew name Naomi means sweet or pleasant, but the name Mara means bitter. She says, don't call me sweet, don't call me pleasant. My life is anything but God has made my life bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? 
See, Naomi is so full of despair and disappointment that she's not just trapped inside this box, but she has accepted this as her lot in life. She has accepted that life is not going to get any better for me. This is my position, and I may as well just own it. In fact, not only has she accepted that as her lot in life, but she has outright said, God did this. I believe in God. I trust God. Sorry, I believe in God. I may not trust him very much, but I cannot hope because he is the one who has done this to me. And what does God say in that situation? How does God respond? What does he answer with? Nothing. God doesn't say anything. In fact, for the rest of the book of of Ruth, she is not called Mara by anyone. Her name continues to be Naomi because God did not accept her name change. She wanted to to characterize herself as somebody who's, who's been put into bitterness by God and God just said, I'm not engaging with her because he fundamentally disagrees with it. And there is this this principle of agreement which seems to to crop up in the way that we pursue our relationship with God is that when you come into agreement with him, things start to happen. Spiritually, things start to move. And so your prayers somehow have more power. People start to get healed. Life starts to, to get on track because you have brought yourself into agreement with God. And we've been going through this in our evening service with this concept of glory. Because the whole universe is headed on this one trajectory, which is towards the glory of God. And so if you can come with the attitude that, God, whatever I do today, I want it to glorify you, then somehow that agreement with the trajectory of the universe results in power and fruitfulness in your life. Now let me try and explain this a bit more sensitively, because the Bible tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. So your disappointment doesn't drive God away. If anything, it brings him closer. But what it also does is it blocks your ears from hearing what he has to say to you. You know, it's like when one of my children is just utterly distraught, something's broken and they're sobbing and they can't control their emotion. And I just want to sort of explain that it's, it's okay. This is something that we can fix. There is a solution here. You're going to be okay. But it doesn't matter how much you say that, they are not in a state where they can hear good words. And so you simply need to wrap them in a hug, pat them on the back, and wait until they've calmed themselves down and then you bring the words of hope. And can I say that if you're trapped in a hope-proof box this morning, that that is what God is doing to you right now. He's not absent. He's not far away. You might not be able to hear him, but he is there. And he's waiting for you to be ready to hear his words because he's not going to speak pessimism over your life. He's not going to speak a negative outcome or a negative attitude because he is a God of hope. But if you want to hear God's voice again, if you want to be full of faith, if you want to desire and be affectionate towards God, then you need to break out of that box. So how do we do it? Now, when I initially drew up this, this continuum, I had it as uh, despair down this end and pessimism above that and then optimism above that and then hope. And so it was kind of this upward trajectory from pessimism through optimism to hope. But then I realized that one of the, the reasons that people in that pessimistic space struggle so much with optimism is that they recognize that it actually occupies the exact same space on the continuum. There's no benefit, there shouldn't be a benefit to being optimistic. Life is going to treat you the same way. It should, in theory, but I don't, I don't know about you, but it seems to treat optimists much better. 
there's probably something in that that I don't have time to fully explore today. But the difference from the pessimistic point of view is that optimism doesn't feel safe because there's no protective barrier from you descending into despair. But you see, the other thing is that that perspective is the only way that's open towards hope. And so somebody who's optimistic is, is, finds the path much easier to faith, to hope, and to affection, desire for God. You know, if we were to look at the biblical words for hope, uh, the two Old Testament words have this idea of waiting and waiting with a sense of tension. You're waiting for something. And the New Testament word uh, has this idea of expectation. You're expecting something. Now, we could go through all those verses, but uh, for the sake of time, let me summarize it for you. In the Old Testament, nowhere does anybody have their hope placed in an outcome and it work out for them. I couldn't find a single instance where this word hope was used. Somebody was hoping for an outcome and they didn't end up disappointed. The only thing that you can, have, can positively have hope in in the Old Testament is in God, in the person of God, in his love and in his word, in his word, which is his promise to you, all of those things which are born out of his character. And so biblical hope, Christian hope, is centered on the person of God and not on a particular outcome. And the New Testament words have this idea of expecting something in the future, and all of the, the appropriate ways to hope in the New Testament are things which are a result, the fulfillment of our salvation. So there's a hope of righteousness. There's a hope of glory. There's a hope of the resurrection. There's a hope of the riches of his glorious inheritance. They are all things that have been won for us by the cross. And let me give you two more visuals to try and uh, understand this. The first one illustrates how hope is described in the Bible. Now, we need to know that hope is different to optimism because optimism looks at the circumstances and sees how this is going to work out well or I can see a good outcome in this. But biblical hope has nothing to do with the circumstances and everything to do with the promise and the person who made that promise. In Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 18, it says that Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as it had been told. What does that mean? in hope to believe against hope. Well, it means that he believed despite the circumstances indicating the exact opposite direction. He chose to hope because he had been given the promise that he was going to be a father of many nations and, and the circumstances looked like it was totally the opposite. His wife was elderly and barren and nothing was happening. So he had to place his faith in a primary act, which was the promise of God. When God said this is going to happen, it's set in motion a trajectory that is only ever going to stop with the fulfillment of that promise. But in the circumstances, that thread of hope is hidden. So Abraham had to choose to believe in that hidden thread of hope against, totally against his circumstances. You know, I think that this is like pregnancy, because there is a primary act which, which sets in motion a pathway towards a hopeful moment, a fulfillment moment. And there's only one way for that baby to come, well, more or less. But for the most part, that hope grows hidden. That hope grows inside. You don't know what that baby's going to look like, what they're going to sound like, what their personality is going to be. And yet you have to choose, in, despite the fact that it's hidden, to believe that that hope is coming. And so you look back to the primary act and you know that this is going to result in fulfillment. 
And so the question remains, how do we break free from this hope-proof box? Well, the answer is that we need one primary act that we can look to, that we know is heading towards ultimate fulfillment, and it's not going to be disappointed. And that act is the cross. You know, 1 Peter 1, 18 to 21 tells us of how we have been ransomed from the futile ways which we inherited from our forefathers, from this futile way of hopelessness, so that the result is our hope is in God through the cross of Christ. Not in an outcome, not in a particular set of circumstances, not in life going exactly how we'd planned, but in God himself, in a good God. You see, every disappointment you have ever had has been dealt with by the cross. Every moment you've ever been let down, every scar of disappointment that you bear is paid for when Jesus hung upon the cross and God laid upon him every sin, which means that every circumstance which resulted in us being born into a world where we are only ever going to be disappointed was laid on him and was dealt with when he died. It was placed upon the broad and compassionate shoulders of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as he died on that cross, so too did our hurt, did our disappointment, everything associated with sin. And then when Jesus rose from the grave, he left them there. And he rose to a new and a living hope, one that means that we will never be disappointed. Those who hope in God will never be disappointed, says Isaiah 49, verse 23. And so we need to understand that the cross is our safety. That we need to to know that we cannot get pushed down to the point where we are never going to experience that hope. The cross is the barrier which stops us from descending into despair. But we need to have our hope in God. If our hope is in outcomes, then we're going to be disappointed. And so how do you break free from this hope-proof box? Well, we're going to respond prayerfully to this message, so I'll just invite the band on stage. And back to our key verse, Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And just as Paul prayed this prayer over the Roman church, I believe that Jesus is praying this prayer over us this morning and that he wants to restore hope to some people. He wants to restore the ability to hope to people this morning. Because some of you have had your ability to hope robbed by the scars of disappointment. But we need to break through. We need to break free of that hope proof box this morning. And the first thing that we need to do is to let go of placing our hope in an outcome. Let go of expecting the, the ways and the means that God is going to resolve something or God is going to take us into his heavenly glory, and simply place our hope in God. Place your hope in a good God. Place your hope in the God of hope. Secondly, we need to let the power of the Holy Spirit break that box because it's only something that he can do. Abounding in hope in your heart is a work of the Holy Spirit, says this verse, but you need to give it over to him. You need to give those expectations over and say, God, I trust you. And look, if that's you, we've got the prayer team who are going to be um, waiting over here, my right, your left. 
and they're ready to pray with you through any of those disappointments, those scars of disappointment that may have resulted in that scenario. So if you would like some help uh, dealing with that, processing that, then please, during this time of worship, make your way over to the prayer team and they would love to pray with you. Now, the third thing is that I believe that there are some people here this morning who have never placed their hope fully in God. You've never placed your hope in a good God. And today you've realized that actually it's, it's not God who's let you down, but actually putting your hope in a good God is the only answer to your disappointments. And so I just ask at this moment that every eye would be closed and, and every head bowed. Because if that's you, if you're somebody who, who knows that you've led a life of hopelessness, that, that things have been difficult from day one and life has just been one disappointment after another, then I'm going to ask you to put your hope in a good God this morning. I'm going to ask you to allow Him to break you free from that trap around your soul which says that hope is not good or hope is not good for me or my hope is broken because He wants to break you free from that this morning. And so I'm going to pray a prayer and we're all going to say this. Uh, you can echo the words after me, but if this is your prayer to God, if you know that this is what you need, then make this your sincere prayer to Him. Pray after me, dear God. I confess my hopelessness to you and my need for a new life. I believe that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, including mine, to buy forgiveness and healing for this broken world and for my heart. I place my faith in you today. I place my hope in you today. And I welcome your spirit into my life. And just while every eye is, is still closed, if, if you prayed that prayer, if that was your sincere prayer to God, then I'm just going to ask one more thing, and that is that you just raise your hand in this moment. No one's looking. I would love to be able to, to celebrate and to pray over you, to pray with you. And for you to take that, that prayer that you've prayed towards God and, and to bring it into action in the real world. Thank you. Thank you. God is breaking your heart free from that box. And today, moving forward, you're going to have hope because by the power of His Holy Spirit, He's going to come into your life and give you hope for a better future, for a better day. Praise Him for that. Thank you. And church, we need to just, for a moment, just celebrate the power of our God to save people, to bring them into His presence. And we need to rejoice in the fact that He always wants to bring freedom and He wants to bring peace. He wants to fill your heart with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And just a reminder, there's prayer over, over this side. If you want uh, prayer for any of those things, come uh, at any time during the worship. But the last thing to say before we get up and we praise our God 
is that for the rest of us, you have permission to be hopeful. You have permission to be optimistic about what life is going to serve up for you, not because your idea of what it's going to look like is what's going to happen, but because your hope is in a good God. You can have hope for your life. You can have hope for your family. You can have hope for your children. You can hope for your neighbour that their life is going to go well for them, that God is going to be working to reach into their heart. You can have hope that we as a church are going to experience blessing and growth and God's presence and His abundant fruitfulness because our God is a God of hope. You have permission to believe for that. Let's all stand together. Lord Jesus, we just commit to you. We thank you that you are a hopeful God. We commit our future to you, God, knowing that this isn't, this isn't some, something that's just you know, difficult, that is just a sacrifice, but God, it's going to go well for us. You promise that you work all things together for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And God, we are that people. We are called according to your purpose. And so God, have your glory in this place. Have your way in this place. We give our hearts to you, God. We, we, we want to be filled with desire for you because you are good. Let's sing. Thank you, Lord.